Okay. Uh, hello, my name is Erin Weil and I'm a co-founder of Film Roundtable. And today is November 7th, uh, 2023. And uh, we have a really special guest today, um, creative director and production designer, Ethan Tobman. And excited to have him here today. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Uh, and Ethan um, has done so much beautiful work in the past. Um, I first was introduced to him when I saw The Room, which was, I guess, Brie Larson's like. Yeah, Room, not to yeah, be confused room. with, not to be confused with The Room. The Room, room. it's Everyone just Room, right. Yes, yes, yes. Not not that The Room isn't an incredible movie in its own right. Yeah, room. but different. <laughs> Um, but Room, beautiful, beautiful, powerful film that you did just such an incredible job production designing. And I would like to talk about that later on because it, I think it was so creative, um, your work on that job. And also known for his work with uh, Taylor Swift on her latest tour, Eris, and also with Beyonce um, on Lemonade and Black is King. And um yeah, and then most recently the menu, right? I mean, and, yeah. and really lots of things in between. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we welcome him today and would love to just start to maybe talk a little bit about how you found production design, because I think it's such an interesting path in the film world, and it's not always the most obvious for people, you know? So I would love to yeah. hear your story. My origin story is... It sounds so much like a movie. It, I mean, it cracks me up to tell it, but this really actually did happen. Um, I was at NYU um, studying film. I made a short film. It was a really weird short film. It was really experimental. It was about, um, it was three scenes, two, three couples of different ethnicities, races, sexes, and sexualities exchanging the exact same words, word for word in every scene. The only thing that changed was the environment they were in and they were all builds. Um, and at the end of this 10 minute short, you realize they're actually all connected. They're, they're literally right next to each other, the rooms. And sometimes the sound from one would, you know, sort of affect the scene and the other. Um, and I submitted it to a lot of film festivals and, you know, didn't get in. And then I got into Cannes. I was 19 years old and I was like, you know, just totally unprepared for it. And um, it went to a lot of other festivals after that because that's sort of what Ken does and the joke is I, I bought a tuxedo for Ken with like the last money I had in my bank account I was Canadian and I was my visa was running out and uh, I wore that tuxedo all year long <laughs> catering <laughs> because that's that's all I could get a job doing and and the reason well one of the reasons I had to was I wrote I did write a script that summer knowing that I would be getting a lot of meetings after can at least people who were sniffing around to see you know what what young talent there was post nyu and i wrote a script about a girl who um travels in asia and unwittingly becomes part of a terrorist plot to blow up a, a, a large u.s monument and i submitted it to every studio that i could on september 8th 2001. oh my god and three wow. days later Obviously, the world changed forever and nobody was returning my phone calls. <laughs> and I mean, I really was like, I powered through that summer, burning through my savings, thinking this is going to be the greatest script, the greatest thriller. It's going to really fuck it up. 
And I mean, I was dead in the water, as was the film industry in New York for, as you remember, a good six months. Um, and so I was catering and I was, you know, using that tuxedo. And one day I heard a producer and a production manager who happened to be at the event talking about how their designer couldn't draw on the movie they were on. And I was always a really, really good illustrator growing up, like a really I was doing oil paintings by the time I was six or seven years old, but I never really took the link between art and illustration and filmmaking as something that could create a source of income or an occupation. It just didn't really occur to me. I wanted to be a director. And um, long story longer, I offered to work for them for free for a week drawing. I asked them to just pay for my Metro cards and my lunch and, um, and to hire me after a week, if they, if they thought I had what it took and they did, they hired me and I rolled with some of those people for a while and they're still really good friends and have become really great producers, um, among them and Rourke and mm -hmm. Anthony Katagas and Callum Green, um, and Pam Hirsch and people who really, have at Bergen Swans and people who've really been involved in not just great independent New York movies for a lot of the nineties and two thousands, but now we're doing a lot of studio films. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful. I caught the last bit of New York indie um, and got in there on these two, three, four, $500,000 movies that many of which didn't find their audience, but they did pay rent and they did teach me a lot. And they introduced me to, incredible production designers as I was making my, my way up myself. Um, what film was that? If you don't mind me asking that. Um, it was called, uh, it was called Lucy Downs, but I think it became Claire Dolan and yeah. Lodge Kerrigan directed it. And Anne Rourke was the producer line producer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so and I'm like on the similar, I was on a similar trajectory as you where I, got into film in like 98 and I uh, wanted to be a DP and I had worked as a photojournalist for like seven years and I came to New York and Girl Fight was the first film I did and I was an electrician. Oh, Steve Beatrice. Yeah, um, but it was a dear friend of mine um, still, but Anthony and Callum were my second movie that I did and, um, and Anthony and I are are still, you know, good friends, you yeah, know, to the day, too. Doug Torres is like yeah, Doug, the yeah. founder of this with me, you know, I yeah. love, so, um, but yeah, that's so I funny. Felt so like, it was like around the same, we were in the same, like, you know, I always felt like the kid brother who would never like be as cool or be as successful or whatever. And when they started calling me for work as a designer, I, I totally remember feeling like, you know, how, like when you're in summer camp and they invite you to like, you know, go on the weekend camping trip and you're like oh my god I think I've made it you know <laughs> <laughs> and it was so fun film back then right because you could kind of be an apprentice on things and and really learn like really get your your hands uh your feet wet like when I did the second film with those guys I was in the art department with Steve and I ended up being the food stylist and that was like my second film ever you know and they had me styling food like you know, yeah. you know what I was doing, but <laughs> I mean, the thing is like, I couldn't actually make a living doing it because um, New York was just getting more expensive and the going rate was between a hundred to $150 a day. And that's it. You couldn't really break out of that. And, um, and so I fell into, I did my first film as a designer 
for free a movie called Twist that Nick Stahl was in. And I had a great time doing it. But I met this wonderful art director on it named Sarah Kugelmas, who was who had a, a, a second career, a parallel career working in photo as a set designer or as a set designer's assistant. Um, and she pulled me into that world. And I met someone named Mary Howard, who now is easily one of the most important and most celebrated set designers in um, in photography. And I was 23, 24 and doing photo shoots for Andy Leibovitz and Mario Testino and Stephen Klein and Craig McDean and Norman Jean Roy, like all the heavy hitters. And that was an interesting way of getting educated in premium um, work ethic with extraordinarily famous people who had resources. There were private planes and you were shooting three or four jobs at once in multiple countries. And you were looking for like really rarefied specific props and construction. So to do like the scrappiness of indie with the sort of more bougie world of photo taught me how and I think very few of my contemporaries at the time had that opportunity where it taught me how to have a lot of money with no deadline, with a tight deadline. And it taught me how to use no money um, for a very long term development process. And so I think when you do those two things at once, it prepares you really well for what came next, which is a lot of the photographers moved into music videos. And now I was designing music videos for them and really pulling together the lessons from indie filmmaking and, um, you know, the higher end photo fashion shoots. Um, music videos led to commercials. And finally, commercials finally led back to movies and TV, but no longer indies, you know, mm -hmm. movies at a different level um, of budget. And the only movies I could get were frankly, just not very good ones. Um, you know, I and if I did do a comedy, that's all that I would get offered after that. And if I did do like, you know, a, a B horror movie. Now that's all I would be offered there. And I was feeling really frustrated by it. But where I was really doing really interesting things was music videos. I really think that, you know, between Beyonce's formation and, um, and the, some of the MGT videos I did, a great OK Go video called The Writings on the Wall. Um, I mean, I did like about a hundred videos, but maybe five or six of them were videos that were, I felt really important that really became a, a culturally significant um, piece of filmmaking. And through some of those, I got an interview for Room. And I, I remember feeling about a week before I got the call for Room, I remember thinking, I don't want to do films anymore just because they have great set design in the descriptions. I want to do films because... I care about the characters. So I'm not going to choose movies based on what they offer me for my portfolio for just production design. I'm going to choose movies based on, do I think the story is worth telling and do I relate to this character and are they complex? And that was a huge shift for me, you know, energetically um, because I wasn't attracting crappy things, I think, anymore. And Room came in a week later and I, on paper, it does not seem like a huge design challenge. Um, but And I chose it exclusively because I loved the story and the characters so much. And I knew it was going to change my life when I got that call and when I got the job. Can you tell us a little bit about the design for that film? Because I I remember reading a little bit like it was an inverted Rubik's Cube. Rubik's Cube, yeah. Yeah. 
I feel like I said that because I was coming off an OK Go video where like everything was a Rubik's Cube. I mean, yeah. these guys are such brilliant engineers and we were doing optical illusions, 30 optical illusions in camera in one take. And um, I think I, I've always had, my dad was an engineer and my brother's extraordinarily great at math. And I, I always joke that like, I hardly got any of those talents, but I definitely am a little bit of a math obsessed person um, and certainly geometrically obsessed. And, um, and I loved the riddle of, how do you fit a hundred people into a 10 by 10 by 10 box um, and obey the rules of filmmaking, which is the camera should never leave that room. You know, the body of the camera can maybe be outside of that box, but the lens never can. The audience will know. So, um, but, but actually before I answer that, the reason that I think I got the job and the reason I think the design for room is so important is because you have to approach room from the perspective of its five-year-old character who doesn't know anything outside of it. So inside the prison of that shed, that's the place that's safe and warm and doesn't have um, any, you know, booby traps or, 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 or weapons um, or villains outside of that room. That's where things are scary for him. So the freedom that's achieved, I think, by their escaping is actually the beginning of a new nightmare for him. And I think a lot of people were worried that, you know, as Lenny Abrams and the director described it, when they get out of that room, how do you keep the air in the balloon? Like, won't the movie just pop and fizzle away? Because that's where the greatest source of tension is. Um, and I think the movie succeeds largely because of his vision um, for finding a second half that essentially puts them in a very different prison. And now they have to figure out how to break out of that. And how do you break out of a prison where you're free? Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting conceit. So from our very first meeting, I felt that there should be two different movies from a production design perspective. None of the materials within Room should ever be seen outside of it and vice versa. So where Room is cork and ripped um, soundproofing and plexiglass and rusted brass, Outside, it should be wall-to-wall -wall carpeting and concave security mirrors and fluorescence and, um, you know, touchpad um, uh, light switches um, and uh, mirrors. These are horrifying things to a, a, a child who's never seen them before, but has the cognitive abilities of a five-year-old. Um, would, they would be deeply, deeply scary. So that was something that was really important to us to be, you know, to use that as sort of like a rule to inform our character's journey. Hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's such an interesting film. I haven't seen it for so many years and now I want to go back and watch it, watch it again. And I, I do remember when I saw it, it reminded me so much of a film that Tom Richmond shot that mm -hmm. won best cinematography at Sundance yeah. in 2007, I think called like right out that door or right yeah. where, where they shot that whole film in one house. Inside. Mm -hmm. So, but also really interesting use of camera and the design and all of that. I mean, a, a much simpler, I think, than, than what you all did in room, but, but also I just, I love that. I love, you know, keeping a story within this contained space, you know, it's, I, 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 I love the challenge of it. I don't know what it is specifically. That's always drawn me to contained stories, but even the menu later is, is informed hugely by that narrative construct of being stuck in one place. Obviously it's a bigger place and there's more people, but 
I really learned on Room not to be afraid of staying in one set for pages and pages and pages. Sets are onions if they're designed to have great humanity and great history of character. So you just peel a layer back and now you're in a completely different environment. Every nook and cranny, um, it's even described this way in the book, was a solar system for him. And when his grandmother asks him how big was Room and he said oh, it was always small enough and it was always big enough. It's such mm. a beautiful line, you know? Um, but yeah, it's it was it was life-changing for all of us because we knew we were doing something important. We didn't know if people would receive it. And frankly, like no one had ever heard of anything I'd ever done. I'd go to dinner parties and I'm 15 years into this business and they'd say, you know, have you have I seen anything you've done? And I'd kind of be like dreading that moment where I'd, you know, I'd be like, should I have just told them I'm in accounting? I mean, if that's the, <laughs> if that's the metric, I've, I'm nobody. Um, mm-hmm. That was a really special experience. So was that a real turning point for your career for you? Well, I think it was, but I think, you know, the fact that formation and room came out like within two weeks of each other, that's, that's what I think what did it was a one-two punch. But I, I do actually remember this great moment where we were at like a deadline round table or one of those, like, you know, you're on the Oscar campaign, you're on the trail. And this was the first movie that A24, a newly formed company, um, felt might be in the Oscar race, might get them some noms. And, um, and they went all in with very limited resources. Um, and I remember someone saying to me on the campaign trail, somebody I'd worked with years ago who was like, always wanted to find something like room to help her um, get interviews for things she wasn't getting. And I remember she said to me, yeah, and look, all you need is one more now. And I was like, I need another room. And she was right because I did start getting better interviews, but it wasn't like everything changed overnight. It's business is a slow burn. A lot of people loved and saw room. Not that many people saw room, you know, um, uh, it took a while before I was considered for some of the things that I was hoping room would open up. I did do beautiful boy with plan B mm-hmm. about a year later. And that was an extraordinary experience with incredibly talented producers and actors and writers. Um, but I think, I, I think it was free guy that opened up a lot of doors ultimately for me, a Sean Levy movie that was definitely like my first four quadrant popcorn mm-hmm. summer film with that Ryan Reynolds. yeah Ryan Reynolds mm-hmm. okay. um and you know that just I mean they were really nervous about hiring me I was 37 years old it's 150 or I, I don't actually remember the budget but it's somewhere in that range um and the art department that I was used to working with that was 30 or 40 people became 300 people and they were really really nervous not about the creativity that I would bring which I was flattered by because I you know like everybody think I'm a fraud and I'm an imposter and I don't have the creativity but they were not worried about that they were worried about the management skills and um and I can now tell you they were absolutely right to be I did not have the management skills I did not know how to run that big um a movie but I learned and I've done one since um and I don't know that I'm dying to do another huge film. I think the business has changed a lot. And I just did my first Marvel movie. And I don't know if that's ultimately where some of my creativity is best served. At least would it would have to depend on the director and the story. 
but um but i definitely learned that my greatest weakness was management and i took like two years of management courses since then and i still think i suck at it yeah hard especially going from 30 people to 300 people right and and i mean when i i had an opportunity like I art coordinated um, for Christy Zia and her Terry Carricker, who was her art director for years yeah. on a commercial once, a huge commercial. And so they asked me to come in and art coordinate on um, uh, the remake of uh, Manchurian Candidate, the one with oh, yeah, the, that was a big job. Jonathan Demi, Demi did. And I ended up not doing it, but then they called me back in to fill in for a their our coordinator who had to step away for like two weeks or something. I can't remember. So I went in and I remember being like, wow, this is, this is big. Like, and how Christy was like a director, right? Yes, and, yes. and Terry Carricker was like the production designer. Yeah, totally. She totally. did everything. She, she helped, she managed everything. And then everybody would come to carry it to, to a, uh, to Christy at the end of the day. And then Christy would go over, over everything with Jonathan Demi and pass it back to Terry. And then, you know, they would be back to work. So was it, was it like that in your, was that kind of a pyramid? I think, um, I think what I didn't understand was, and, and and if you want to talk about fraud complex and imposter syndrome, it's one of my favorite things to talk about, because I really like people to know they're, that we all feel it that yeah. it'll never go away and it's that you make it in this business right yeah and like learning learning how to embrace it and use it that's your ticket because if you try to pretend it doesn't exist or if you think that you have it and no one else does you're dead in the water so you might as well learn to like incorporate it into the creative process because it can really create beautiful things um mm-hmm. and um i think what i the mistake that i made was i kept thinking i had to prove to everyone around me that I was as good as them or better than them. I thought they're going to think I'm so young and they don't think I belong. And, you know, and I would stay up to like three or four in the morning doing like 20 drawings. And then I'd be exhausted the next day. And I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't acting as a, as a great leader. I was acting like somebody who was trying to prove I was a great leader. And it was such a relief when I finally figured out, yeah, they are better than me. That's great. Surround yourself with people who are better than you at something. You can't be great at everything. Being a production designer means, and I know other people have said this before, but it means you're good at a million things and you're great at none of them. You can't be the one who sees it to the finish line. You have extraordinary art directors, foam carvers, texturers, wallpaperers, draftsmen, draftswomen. Use them. They've spent their lives perfecting a piece of the puzzle. Like especially the digital artists who I really didn't have that much experience with the 3d modelers and the the 3d sculptors they're in their whole new industry that even even they don't know you know the potential for um so I have to say like in the jobs I've done since um I definitely try to lean into being I love to tell I love to say I'm the stupidest person in the room and I love to say that you know everyone deserves to be there more than me and lean into it um, and since I made that shift, I really think I've done some of the most diverse and certainly most entertaining work I've ever done. You know, the menu, Pam and Tommy. The oh my menu God, I, led I to, did that, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
the menu led to the chef from the menu hiring mm -hmm. me to design her three-star Michelin restaurant, which was a oh absolute dream of mine. I've always loved hospitality and design for hospitality. And I, I always said, if I wasn't, um, a filmmaker, I would be, I would work in a kitchen. I, th I find it so precise. And so, um, can you tell us the name of the restaurant so we can go? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's called Atelier Kren. It's, it was listed in the top 20 in, um, in, you know, the 50 best it, it's the first woman chef in America to receive three Michelin stars. And she just got them again, despite changing her menu to almost, almost totally pescatarian. Um, and yeah, I, I, it's a real story of art imitates life imitates art because we met on the menu where I was building a, a, a restaurant for film and she, she, she was really inspired by it. And I was really inspired by her. And I redesigned some of the sets based on her dishes. And her, she redesigned some of her dishes based on the set. It was like this really great, she called it, oh, we are dancing is what Dominique Kren would say. Um, and um, so I got to design that restaurant. Where and is it? Right at the same time, Taylor Swift, who I had done several videos for as a designer, and who I'd gotten really close with, I think, as a as a creative soldier. Um, and who I met, by the way, because Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively recommended me to her from Free Guy. Um, she um, she asked me to direct her her tour, to create a director tour. And I'd never, I mean, the only live performances I'd ever done was um was Taylor for the Grammys for one song and Beyonce um also for the Grammys for two songs. And they were really ambitious live numbers, but this is like a three-hour world stadium tour. I thought I was going to get fired so fast. Um, and I, I, I honestly think the things I learned from making mistakes along the way is ultimately what worked to uh, to to the tour's benefit. Right, right. I mean, and then it's like catapulting into like this whole other fantastical world, putting that tour together. Um, you, how long ago were the Grammys? Cause I remember when Brady Corbet is a really good friend of mine. And I remember yeah. when he was, um, looking for production designers on box locks, I think yeah. is what it's called. Yeah. He told me he was interviewing you. Yeah. And, um, and I really wanted to do that, for, but I think we were doing for your experience. I mean, a part of it was for your experience of doing yeah. some live yeah. events, you know, which he was super into, um, and I think, I think that didn't work out because we were doing, out. I think that didn't work out because we were, because we were doing additional photography on Lemonade, but I, I actually don't remember the yeah. timing of that. But um, I have this, this incredible relationship specifically, I think with female pop stars, it hmm. wasn't, that's not by design and it wasn't the intention, but you know, when everybody was growing up, um, especially the boys were growing up loving Michael Jackson and George Michael and Prince. I, I was just this kid who was obsessed with Madonna and Stevie Nicks and Cyndi Lauper and Boy George. And, you know, you can read the, between the lines about what the reasoning for that was. But when I saw Madonna's Blonde Ambition tour, I was nine years old and it was in Toronto. And I was just like, what is this? It, mm -hmm. Like I read, the, I read the term pop opera then and I thought, um, I've never seen anything that combined athleticism, music, set design, and fashion in such a 
entertaining and narratively driven way. I mean, she was definitely influenced at the time by some of the movies, um, directors that she had been in and, and, and was going to be in. Um, and not too long after that, um, I just started going to tons and tons of shows. And again, like I never, I never really equated one with the other, but when Taylor called me to do this, I just remember thinking, look, it's been like 30 or 40 years since anyone's really done something like this before at the top of their game, um, with such a cinematic approach to music. And mm. I, and that was my pitch was I want to make immersive cinema. I want to take all the things I've learned from filmmaking and apply them to live performance. I didn't want it to feel like anything that anyone had ever really seen before, because we are employing a lot of very old theatrical technology with very um, cutting edge ones, but I wanted it to feel tactile. Mm. I didn't want it to feel synthetic. I wanted you to feel like you could touch it, you know, much in the way small, intimate, experimental theatrical um, experiences are. So that was the challenge, how to make something intimate in a stadium. And um, it's just such a brilliant artist that, that I think she really, she's really the conduit for allowing those ideas to come to life. Did, um, like how long, I didn't go to the tour, but I saw pictures and in the photographs, you can obviously feel how tactile and immersive it is. Like it feels very much so just in photographs. Um, how long of a setup was that at every place? And did that stuff all get put on a semi or 10 semis and then trucked to the next place? Like that must have, was that a big setup? Like every single time it went to a different city? This, but um, I think one of the reasons that I am able to work with these um, Ariana Grande, Madonna, um, I finally got to work with Madonna, which was like a full circle moment, mm -hmm. Taylor Swift, Beyonce, is because of how discreet you have to be. And mm -hmm. so there's obviously a lot of questions that people want to ask about the logistics of things. I mean, oh, okay. for and example, when on the first show, when she when she dived into the stage, everyone was like, how do you do that? Huh? So anything regarding the logistics, I actually don't, I actually don't talk about. And I think, I think that's what that world looks for in some ways. Yeah, um, keep it a mystery. But what I will, keep it a mystery. Um, but what I will say is that the longer you have to ideate with someone and the longer you the more involved they are in the creative process. I've heard of some musicians that kind of just show up and say, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. And I'm really lucky to say I've never met one of those musicians. I've always worked with people who um, are really involved in the creative process and, and want to give you a huge runway leading up to that first performance. But, mm -hmm. you know, but listen, like I want to do something totally different now. That's my whole thing is I, I'm sh I'd love to do some more live performance. I'd love to do movies. I'd like to try immersive experience design. That's such a hot ticket item right now. And it seems like a natural extension of some of the things I've learned, but that I've never done before. And I, I love being scared of, can I pull this off? Will I be able mm -hmm. to do this? I think it's incredibly important to 
diversify and not get too stuck in something you've done before, even though everybody tries to get you to do that. Yeah. I remember when I first saw Sleep No More, like right when it came out, um, I was like, oh my God, there needs to be more of this. Like, this is so amazing. And I went to see it like three times, you know, and when people will come into Me town. Me too. Um, and that, I love that kind of, immer- I love immersive art. You know, I really, I yeah. really, really do. When it's done, when it's done well, it's like, you can't get any better than that because you have your audience participating in what's happening and it becomes the biggest collaboration ever, you know, because <laughs> it's always going to be different. My, my greatest criticism of, 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 what happens when you start working a lot and and becoming incredibly consumed by the amount of time the creative process takes is that you don't have enough time to see other people's work. And yeah. I, I, I try to push myself to do it, but I always regret missing that art show, missing that um, two week run, missing that musician who came into town where I was like, oh shit, I didn't even hear about them having a concert. Mm-hmm. Every single thing I go to, I get inspired by or or end up being influenced by in some way. Um, I don't want to say copying because we all try not to do that, but it's certainly feeling um, like an injection of a new creative perspective. That to me, I mean, I don't know how other people do it. I don't know if you do it, but I should be going out five, six, seven nights a week because the amount of creative output I'm, I had to do on the tour, the restaurant, the movie um, and the music videos in the space of one year um, required a huge amount of inspiration. Oh, and self-care. That was one year. All that of was that one year, dude. One year? Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. So you're just yeah, kind the, of. The menu came out November 18th and it's November 6th, 7th today. Yeah. It's been less than a year since even that came out. Yeah, I know. That's a lot. I know. I'm really grateful. Yeah, that's a lot. And that. You know, I can't imagine where you're going to go next after having a year. Well, and and in that same year, I also directed my first music video for um, Allison Russell's yeah, video that was came out beautiful. last week. Yeah. Do you yeah. want to talk about that? Yeah, I, I forgot about that. Yeah, I wanted to. T- I actually wanted to talk about that because when you posted it, I watched yeah. it. And and she also seems effing amazing. Like I don't know, she just seems incredible. Like I looked through her Instagram a little bit and I was like, oh my God, she seems like such a loving, like happy person. Oh man. I mean, I don't know if you know the story there, but um, Allison and I grew up together in Montreal. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, and she was always really talented and always really um, different mm-hmm. than everyone else. Um, I don't think that Montreal was the most culturally diverse place in the eighties when we were growing up. And I know she suffered from, um, and she sings a lot about this. That's why I'm bringing it up, but she suffered from, um, you know, being called out for being, um, black and not belonging, but, um, none of us knew, I mean, well, we grew up together and none of us knew the abuse that she was suffering at the hands of her stepfather. And that is essentially what, a lot of her music is about her first album was about the sexual abuse that she experienced as a child that ultimately led to her escaping Montreal. Um, it's called outside child. The second album, the returner, which I was so inspired to work with her on um, is kind of a celebration of what happens once you survive that abuse, but not by pretending the abuse didn't happen, 
not ignoring it, literally dancing with it. You know, it's like, it's like a jubilee. Um, and Demons in particular is this great song because it's like a Grecian, ancient Greek theater call and response. She says demons, the chorus says demons, demons, demons. And it's like, they're flirting with each other. It's like, look, you're, these are the demons her own demons, parts of herself? Are they the demons that abused her? Um, I wanted to make something that takes a really dark subject matter and makes it really playful mm -hmm. um, and actually brings you joy because mm -hmm. Allison is an incredibly joyful person. She's never felt like a victim. She's never felt like someone whose scars haven't imbued her with um, like joy and beauty. Um, so look, sometimes I think what we do for a living and Allison would definitely agree with this um, is my job is to make adults feel the joy of childhood. Cause that's what storytelling in my mind is, you know, it, it, it transports you to a, a, a part of your life where things are based in imagination and that's youth. Mm -hmm. So I love the idea that um, you can take really dark subject matter and, and bring joy um, to it. And that's what we tried to do on demons. And somewhere along the way, we realized we're born on the same day within an hour of each other. And then it was just like, okay, well, this was just a celestial setup. We were supposed to make this video together. So yeah, it, it I used every trick I've ever learned from every video I've ever made to pull that video off. Yeah. It looked, it looked complicated of your like behind the scenes. <laughs> For, for a music video in 2023, right? Like, um, you know, you pre-vised everything. Like it it looked very, uh, it, like there was a lot involved, right? And music videos these days aren't so much like that, especially for someone who's not Taylor Swift or Beyonce, you know, or maybe Lady Gaga. Right. But, um, well, look, the record label didn't even want to do the video. I pushed for it and I raised money for it. Um mm -hmm. And I put some of my own into it because I figured like, well, first of all, I don't know anyone more deserving of that filmic um, charity or gift or whatever than Allison. Um, but also like, when was that ever going to happen again, where you have a friend who really needs you and you're coming off of this huge creative journey at a hugely public level and you have creative energy to burn and you want to do something with it? Like, why mm -hmm. not? why not help change someone's visual life? Um, yeah. You know, and like I said, I've always been really attracted to female um, storytelling in music. And like, here's somebody who has incredible stories that I grew up with, but has never told them visually before. So it was, it was a, I think it was like kind of cathartic for all of us. Yeah. I was just going to ask that. Like, was it really healing for Yeah, Yeah. And for her. Look, I, I don't mean this as a negative thing, but this always tells you how good something was, but we all fell into like the deepest depression when it was done. But that's mm -hmm. sometimes how it goes and how, you know, you were somewhere really, really special, you know, like we yeah. were in, you know, we we were in Fiji together on an all expense paid trip for a minute and then it, it ended. But yeah. what I think that I learned from that experience was how to integrate VFX and choreography. That's something I'm really fascinated by mm -hmm. because um, when you're, when you're making music videos, you're making a, a silent film. Um, you're recalling early, early cinema and what it was like when you didn't have dialogue, but you're also 
using experimental cinema. And I remember when I was growing up in the 80s, I remember reading that we were the first generation that was being exposed to experimental film as a mainstream genre. Prior to that, if people wanted to go see, you know, um, meshes of the afternoon or whatever, they'd have to find like a repertory cinema and they'd, you know, it, they'd, mm -hmm. they'd go at weird hours and these things were only eight to 20 minutes. And this was available to us like 24 seven on MTV. Um, so I think we were a really lucky generation that got to see like really, really glossy 80s mainstream cinema with like more edgy experimental stuff at the same time. I'd wish that we could figure out a way of bringing that back to young filmmakers today. That'd be so great. I remember when MTV was just advertising, I must've been in like eighth grade or seventh grade. And I remember seeing advertisements for it and cable, I think had just started or was just starting. Like I remember we had this cable box and the advertisements for MTV and not understanding that was just going to be part of it. But I was like, Oh my God, I want that. And it was the, um, they always would show the Rolling Stones start me up music video. Yeah, right, like right, 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 right. And video killed the radio star. Yeah, totally. I was yeah. like, oh my God, I want this. It was like, yeah. so, because I think we were like a culture of fo of kids who were listening to albums, you know, and getting so into yeah. music. And that was so visual for us. And then seeing that brought to actually a visual that you were able to watch on your television was like, Oof, you know? Yeah. And I mean, somehow I knew that David Fincher, who was really the first person that introduced me to, or, you know, Franz Kafka and, um, and um, Fritz Lang. I mean, like Madonna's Express Yourself and Vogue and Oh, Fa oh Father is Orson Welles, Citizen Kane. Um, I knew how important he was. I didn't know he would become such a prolific filmmaker, but he was so important to me growing up. And I, I knew that like when other kids were playing with action heroes um, or were obsessed with like, you know, some sports star, I knew it was like kind of weird that I was like following every single video David Fincher would ever do. And like, that was the thing that I was waiting for, you know, to come out. Um, um, and then later Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones were just such huge influences on me um, because everything was in camera and it was crafty and it was scrappy. Um, and it was like really high concept done in really throwaway, low concept ways. Um, it took a long time to figure out how to do that um, in in my work, because partially because that's pretty risky filmmaking. And there isn't the market to support that as much as I think there used to be. I do feel like I arrived on the music video scene um, when they've sort of officially, I don't want to say they've died this year, but the business model of selling music doesn't make sense anymore yeah. within a music video marketing yeah. it doesn't i mean like literally the metrics there's only 10 percent of youtubers actually subscribe and pay on the other hand if they listen to spotify the artist does make some money from each click so you are disincentivizing income streams by creating music videos people are watching them for free on youtube so they're not paying for it to listen to it on spotify it doesn't make sense anymore so the only music videos that seem to make sense in this market are ultimately for artists who just adore the medium um or for vanity projects um yeah. that's not a sustainable industry i i hope somehow we figure out a way to monetize music videos again because it seems like that's the only way that they're here to stay 
But right now I'm really grateful for a few select artists who just adore filmmaking and creative expression and feel like damned if they do, they need to make these, these short films to express a part of themselves that the music only does partially. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I have a 16 year old and an 18 year old and, you know, the only music videos they've ever, they're big into music, but the only music videos they've ever watched are the ones that I've had them watch, you know, over wow. time ones I've worked on or old school ones, you know, like you got to see, you know, this, uh, you know, Duran Duran music video or something like, you know, whatever I show them from back in the day. I and, mean, and they, um, you know, I think their, their version of music video is watching TikTok and somebody doing like a dance totally. to the song. So it would be kind of meta to do like a music video with an artist that's choreographed as a dance to a TikTok or something. Do it, would, it. do it, take it, run with it. And, but you but can't be a great, not into it. but you can't be a great filmmaker without absorbing every medium of film. Like if I'd never seen, you know, Chris Cunningham's All is Full of Love for Bjork, um, I don't think I would understand how important synthesizing CGI and um, physical mechanical props are. I mean, that video still holds up. If you watch it now, it's still so cool. Um, I'm gonna have to go watch that. Yeah, I mean, I have a list of things where like, you know, you can be as informed by the most brilliant movie ever made and the most brilliant four minute music video ever made when you're making your next movie or you're designing for your, your next TV show. Um, but one thing that I've seen is my, like my nephews, for example, the new generation of, of both filmmakers and film watchers sitting somewhere and watching something for four minutes doesn't make sense to them. They'll watch 16 episodes of something they'll binge um but watching four minutes of one thing that that doesn't really make sense when you can just sort of like get the cliff notes or watch like you said a 15 20 second tiktok clip so in some ways like we have to adapt because what we're seeing is a new generation that's asking us to provide different different formats of entertainment so if we keep pushing for something that may not be relevant to them and was frankly only relevant for a total of like 20 or 30 years. Um, I think we start looking like fossils. Yeah, I agree. And I also talking to my kids about it, you know, the world is so intense now, you know, and especially for kids because they get all the sort of bombardment of news happening all the time. A lot of times they don't necessarily want to watch something that is where they're still for too long and it brings up a lot of emotions because oh. there's so many things coming in at them all the time it's hard to process all of these feelings i mean my kids and i talk about stuff like this all the time but that's what they think a big thing is like it's just a heavy world we live in like there's school shootings all the time. There's this going on there, this going on there. They're, they they can block some of it out, but it's coming in. And I think it's hard to sit and watch something that might evoke something they're not sure if it, what's going to come up or not. And music videos can be that way, right? You There's like the small little story there and the, with the song, yeah. acting and what might be going on, it could bring up emotion. Um, you know, it's funny. I Last Sunday, I had plans Um and some someone canceled at the last second. And I don't usually remember this, but I thought I'm going to go see Anatomy of a Fall. 
this mm. new French film that won Cannes, won Best Actress at Cannes. It's two and a half hours. It's a very, very detailed procedural um, where you question the main character's innocence right up until the last second. And, um, but not a thriller. It is slow moving. It is a character study. And I walked, I, 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 I saw it in the middle of the afternoon. I saw it about myself, which I think is the most gorgeous self-care date you can have going to see a movie alone. And I walked out and I was like, so happy and so calm. And even though I'd watched two and a half hours of someone else's life, I felt like so grounded in mine afterwards. I just don't know anything else that feels that way you know mm -hmm. I I love theater I love live music um I don't know anything that can transport you that way and like lingers for two or three days that's just how my brain is built but um I've sort of made a point now of taking myself out to an early afternoon movie once a week as my new yoga class or my self-care um yeah but and like I said like no matter what you watch it does inform your work there's something else I'm working on right now and we had our first big creative brainstorming session yesterday it was three hours of batting ideas and like best idea wins um and I was pulling shit that like I mean things I haven't thought about in 25 years I was I was pulling out this cartoon fire and ice that was huge to me in the early 80s that was um I mean, it's this like, it, it it's like a classic almost Greek story of like literally the elements conspiring against each other. And it's a cartoon, but it's weirdly homoerotic. I mean, it really is. <laughs> and we started pulling it up and looking at it. And I'm like realizing even at four or five years of age, you're, you are cataloging art. You are somehow remembering its emotional impact on you. It never goes away. Yeah. So talking about your, you know, directing that music video for Allison, like, are you, are you, are you liking being in that role? Like, um, I know everybody's asking this now, you know, you think that, I mean, it's so funny, man, this business is so funny. After you do something really big on the world stage, you do get a lot of bites mm -hmm. and you do get a lot of meetings and I could be wrong about this, but my experience so far is that meetings lead to meetings, lead to <laughs> meetings and lead to meetings. They don't, you're so psyched at first because you're like, oh my gosh, I was trying to get in with that person for years and now they're calling me for a meeting. And you kind of just talk and talk about talking again. Um, but it seems like a lot of people are almost expecting a directing move now. Um, and certainly after directing the music video, I've given that indication. Um, and I really think that that's interesting and that's something I'm pursuing. And there's some projects that I'm maybe close to seeing come to fruition, but there's so much more I want to do. I want to design. I, I want to do another restaurant, mm -hmm. uh, especially a destination one. I love the idea of creating an immersive environment, both for hospitality and entertainment. I went, I went to the sphere recently in Las Vegas. Now that's a whole new tool in canvas that is like, fascinating. Oh, that is. oh my gosh. It's the 360 degree globe. That's all a hyper, hyper high, high K led environment. And you too is the first resident band there. Um, look it up. It's wild. It's 
It's totally wild. It's it's a sphere. It's it's like a planetarium, but unlike anything you've ever seen before. Wow. And you and choose it, it projects both on the inside and the outsides. So now that's like okay, well, what could we do with an art, with an artist's iconography there? What immersive things can we experience there? I mean, as Devlin was involved in, in the sphere, and I feel like she got to express herself in ways that this phenomenal artist has never gotten to do before. And so what else is, so what else is available to us? That's really interesting to me. Um, And frankly, like those are the things that are really culturally relevant now, where some of the greatest movies that have been made you can't really name them a year or two later you know a lot of filmmakers can't tell you what won best picture last year um that doesn't mean it's not a necessary art form or that i don't adore it and i'll never stop making movies i just think that's not the only way to express yourself right now and a lot of things excite me nothing nothing has been more satisfying to me than the term creative director because to me that's a combination of design and directing and choreography and lighting like there's so many elements to a creative director's role, but the number one thing that you're doing is telling the next story of a major artist's life, right? That's what you're doing. And that's so interesting because that's a living, breathing person who's evolving every day and who you are in real time transferring into a narrative entertainment experience. That's so meta and I, I'm really enjoying that. I find that really challenging and really invigorating. Yeah, I mean, it really is so great how you've diversified, you know, what you're doing and you're not just necessarily in one role, you know, as the production designer on the movie, like you're doing that, you're you're getting involved in these immersive experiences, obviously, both, you know, the Taylor Swift concert changed so many kids' lives, you know, yeah. and friends having that experience together fathers too with their daughters um and i think the rush i mean there's so many things you're doing that just can start to become so outside of the box and really but like when i look at my heroes they did it too like dick mm-hmm. silbert the the you know the first great production designer the grandfather of all of, of our dreams was head of paramount in the 70s oh wow like what people don't remember that really awesome creative storytellers used to be more fluid mm-hmm. you know um it, it it was easier um i think to move between roles back then by the way he started in theater so um i would love to direct something and then follow it up by designing something i think one of the reasons i wanted to do this this podcast is or um or this what do you call this is this a podcast or is this is one of the reasons I want to do this zoom <laughs> yeah it's because I want other people to think that they can do that it's 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 really hard you know what ends up happening is I love using the metaphor of the child who's losing using two languages at the same time they usually take a lot longer to speak and when they do they're fluent when you're in music videos movies and commercials all at the same time you see some of your friends and they're excelling in film because they only did film or they're excelling in music videos because and you feel like you're nowhere but you're laying the groundwork and it takes a lot longer and it does pay dividends it it pays handsomely eventually but it takes a lot longer to feel like you're doing anything um yeah substantial um so one of the reasons I, i wanted to talk to you is to say to anyone listening um laying that groundwork the longer the runway, the, the greater the result. And 
I'm so glad I didn't get tempted by the explosion of Netflix or Amazon um, or Apple by bumping up too quickly and jumping jumping into you know bigger budgets so fast. And I got to play around a little bit with photo shoots, music videos, commercials, um, TV, movies, now hospitality and live performance. And I never want to stop sort of ADDing my way through all of this. <laughs> How about interior design? Like, do you have a, a passion for that at all? Or well, I have to tell you, I don't think I have any talent for it at all. I know really great interior designers. Um, I bought my first house a few months ago and I was like so disappointed by how flummoxed I was by it. I just, designing for me, my story, oof, that's hard after spending 23 years trying to get into somebody else's head. I had a, I had a very hard time with it. And I, I, I've learned a lot, but I absolutely... I'm grateful to my interior designer friends. That's not something I can do. You can't do everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. I always, that's, I've never turned it on that, that, that side before. I always thought production designers would make great interior direct decorators. Not this one. I mean, some of them maybe, but I I'm better. I think at very big canvases or very amorphous canvases, something permanent that is supposed to be my space. I will say that I learned not to rush and to see how you live in a space. I mean, I think I did rush. I think I should have spent a year just living there and figuring out like, you know, subconsciously when you reach for the paper towel, is it 18 inches or 16 inches? That's the kind of stuff that, but I think at the end of the day, you keep refining. And I think part of owning a home and renovating is you're kind of supposed to make mistakes, kind of have to, because you can't live in a construction site for a year. And at least some of the choices I've made, I think are, are, are really interesting. Well, good. Yeah. And then, so I know you're, you're in New York right now doing a project, um, but like, what are, you know, if we're going to, let's say, this is a good question for you. What are like five things you want to do art wise while you're in New York before you have to leave? Oh, that's a great, oh, that's a great question. Um, well, um, I'm dying to go, I love going to the Brooklyn Museum. You know, I, I actually love walking there. Um, I find it really meditative, I'd love to do that. Um, I just saw a great Sondheim revival called um, Merrily, I think it's called Merrily We Come Along. It was incredible. There's another Sondheim revival that's on right now and I'd like to go see that. I can't remember the name of it, but okay. um, Sondheim was a huge one for me growing up. Um, I have about 50 restaurants I want to go to, um, but going to um, Jackson Heights, Queens, Indian um, Row, that's always, that's definitely going to happen before I leave. Um, I've done one of the things I love to do, which is I love going to the Flower District. I'm sad to see how many businesses have closed, but I love walking around the Flower District and getting ideas. Um, and um, I'm obsessed with uh, America, the American Ballet Theater. I'm obsessed with ballet, um, particularly modern ballet, because I find that kind of athleticism, the closest thing you can get to Olympic athletes um, in, in this culture outside of team sports. Like I, I don't know anything else other, other than tennis, which I'm also obsessed with. Um, I find American, I, I find modern ballet to be like the greatest thing you can do with your body. And I think the set design is astonishing because it's so minimalist and they have so many, so few square footage to transport you into huge worlds so oh. I'm hoping to catch some ballet while I'm here yeah yeah my next door neighbor is a conductor 
and a female. I have never met a female conductor before, but she is conducting the orchestra for Paul Taylor at Lincoln Center, which when? has four week left. One more okay. week. That's maybe that's uh, what I do. Yep. And it's uh with the orchestra of St. Luke's, I think. And it's supposed to be really beautiful. And Paul Taylor is very obviously yeah. abstract, modern, modern yeah. dance. I'm there. I'll look it up. Yeah. That's yeah. what I want to do when I'm here because LA has a lot of great things, but it does not have great um live performance or live theater and it doesn't have the ballet that New York has. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that sounds yeah. fun. Um, any, any last things you want to, I think, I, I mean, talk about? It's, just, it's such a hard time right now in this business. And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, acknowledge it. I mean, it, 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 I look like I'm in such a great place professionally after this year, it's been really prolific and I've worked a lot, but I have not worked a lot recently. And I feel like people have a lot of shame about that. Like they feel like, oh, maybe it's just them, or maybe they're not good enough. And I just think this is a time where we have to be like really careful with how we treat ourselves because it can get really depressing. And I think it can get really lonely um, professionally, um, if nothing else. Um, And while I think that it will get better and things will come back, you know, you and I have talked about this privately. I don't think it's going to be the same business once we do come back. I think that because things are more expensive overall in the world, there will be like 12 episodes will be eight, eight episodes will be six. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I think not only finding ways to diversify within this business, but also outside of it might end up being a really important thing to um, having the, the the positive, stable lifestyle that you want. You know, I think you can't fight change. You have to, you have to, you have to change with change. And I think- You have to grow changing. with it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and try not to be fearful of that. Right. Because I mean, it it's going to be terrifying no matter what. So, you know, like I was saying earlier about imposter syndrome, like there's got to be a way to use that fear and anxiety in a positive way to mm-hmm. create great things. But so many of us as freelancers, myself included, you kind of beholden to the phone call ringing and saying, okay, we're a go. And that can feel really powerless. Um, so I love talking to my friends and colleagues about not falling into that trap where your self-worth is dependent on, on that phone call. Mm. Mm, That's nice. It's a nice piece of advice. Thanks for having me. I feel like you give me advice like that all the time. So Mm -hmm. thanks for giving me a chance to give some back. Yeah. It was really wonderful having you. I'm glad we did this. Me too. Uh, All right. Uh, I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you everyone. And then we'll say bye off camera. I mean, off (laughs) board. All right. Thanks so much, Ethan. So listen, are you going to go to the Paul Taylor thing? Uh, Yeah, I'm going to hang up. Let me hang up or let me stop recording. Hold on.